You're listening to The Korea File. I'm Andre Goulet. The Korea File is a monthly podcast exploring Korean society, culture, and politics, and highlighting critical independent voices you won't find anywhere else. On this episode... John Dunbar is a life member and council member of the Royal Asiatic Society Korea branch and the general editor of the Society's Transactions Journal. He's also been a medium-term permanent resident of Korea for more than 15 years and an urban explorer. He joins me from Seoul this morning. Hello, John. Hey, how's it going? I'm good. Let's begin by discussing the Royal Asiatic Society Korea branch, the RASKB. Some are under the impression that the RASKB is a dusty old organization, but you say that that is far from the truth. Uh, Tell me more about that. I don't know how anybody could get that impression. Honestly, there's a lot of things about the RAS that look kind of old on the surface. Its name, why is it royal? If you ever go to one of our events, the average age is probably older than you and me. But uh, actually, uh, there are quite a lot of young people involved in it. So it is a very dynamic organization, I've discovered. And a lot of the people who are older have been in the RES since they were younger than you and I. So it's really, um, it's fun to, for, in my opinion, I've enjoyed going there to meet these people who've been in Korea since the 80s, the 70s, the 60s, and uh, had a similar experience to me in a very different time in a very different Korea. So, uh, like, if you go to an RES event, usually... Uh, you know, we have a lecture or a walking tour or something. And then, like, after, you know, everybody goes out and drinks makgeolli or whatever together. So it's quite a lot of fun. Um, generally, every event that I've been to. Um, and it really makes me feel a, li- a lot more well-adjusted to life in Korea as well. Like, you know, being able to be around people who are kind of old enough to be my parents sometimes brings a bit of stability, I want to say. Interesting. And yeah, we're both around 40, just to give listeners a contextual idea of age and, and how that relates to the to the society. And listeners, good news, the financial state of the RASKB is not that dire. The Chosun Ilbo published an article last year about the financial state of the society. And the piece suggested that the organization was, in fact, uh, running out of money but that report had a positive effect. Uh, tell us more about that. Well, so basically, uh, last year we were in a worse financial state. But honestly, um, I never really was that worried. I always figured the money would come from somewhere. But after that Joseon Ilbo article, we started having uh, all these big donors roll in. So all of a sudden, um, we were much more financially stable. Of course, everybody has still been kind of in disaster mode and trying to figure out how to save costs even more rather than like, you know, trying to be like, let's buy uh, a new building for the RES or something. Like they're being very, very fiscally responsible about it. About it. So yeah, there hasn't been really much of a change in how we do things, just a little bit more comfort. But yeah, the attention that came out of that has been very positive because it was strange to many of us how so few Koreans really knew about us. Or also in other cases, a lot of Koreans who did know about the RES got a reminder that, you know, it seems like virtually everybody read the article that I talked to. Like, um, people at my work just, you know, mention it to me. Uh, uh, it's the funniest thing. We actually got a message from uh, some school kids in Dongducheon. So basically, um, they read the article and they were like, oh no, the RES is closing. We want to do whatever we can to help. So 
uh, they contributed articles and they were like, yeah, do with these what you can. Uh, so we got four articles from four students and we put them in uh, the latest issue of Transactions. So uh, they have now had the honor of becoming the youngest people published in this journal ever. Well, how, how old are these kids? They're high school. They told me they were 18 Korean age. And uh, what, what, kind of to- what kind of topics did their articles uh, uh, investigate or, or explore? Uh, basically, uh, there was one that was uh, about uh, Hangul. Uh, which, uh, you know, is kind of what you can imagine. One was about shidum, traditional Korean wrestling. Another was about uh, something difficult. The humor of Korean literature and Kim Yoo-jung. And Korean literature through tourism was the last one to come in. So those four, they're all like, you know, a page, a couple pages each. And uh, it was a real shot in the arm to the RES to, to have these... Uh, contributions come in out of nowhere. For sure. And so it's these youth, it's sort of an untraditional connection uh, with with an audience and with contributors that the journal and that the society does not always come in touch with. Um, and what's, what's the, like, what's the operating budget for an organization like the RISKB? Like, what does it take to keep that, to keep that organization running? The biggest cost is actually, uh, well, the two biggest costs are rent for our office and uh, personnel costs. We usually have somebody who manages the office. Uh, so that's several million won per month. Most of the events that we run, uh, you know, generate money or break even. Like the garden party, our biggest event, uh, we put a lot of money into it and we hope we get a lot back. Our lectures, uh, we are actually provided very generously by the Somerset Hotel, free use of their room, um, which is uh, a very amazing thing that they do for us. And of course, our excursions, these days we do mostly like within the city excursions so we don't have to rent buses or anything and usually there's there's no way to lose money on those right and actually so the garden party which you guys hosted earlier this month june 2019 uh this is like an essentially an informal meeting that happens once a year uh sort of celebrating the society having a chance for people to come together uh in a in a kind of more social environment this one was the 119th anniversary party of the Royal Asiatic Society Korea branch. So where did it take place? Uh, How was the turnout? And uh, yeah, tell us more about that. Okay, so basically this year was the, yeah, I think you said 119th birthday. We haven't had 119 garden parties, of course. In the past, these have been held all sorts of places. Uh, Right after the student revolution in 1960, there were one or two that were held in Gyeongbok Palace itself, like at Gyeonghyeru. Uh, and I believe the president, Yoon Bo-sun, was possibly even attending. Uh, they've, they've been uh, in some of the palaces, but these days we alternate between the British ambassador's residence and the American ambassador's residence, both kind of behind Duxu Palace. This year was the American, resident, uh, the American ambassador's residence, and we actually got to hang out with the, the new American ambassador, uh, Harry Harris, who um, I was worried about meeting him because, you know, Trump appointee, but he was a very nice guy, very uh, tolerant of uh, us being there the whole time. He let us actually stay a little later than they usually do. Um, he was gracious as a host. Hung out more than I've seen an ambassador do. 
Uh, so it was it was really cool. Actually, I was very impressed to meet him. Uh, and what was the turnout? How how many how many people showed up? Uh, it felt like less than last year, which was like the record setting year. So I feel like it was between a hundred and a hundred fifty. Okay, so last that's actually that's great. That's a great turnout. And if last year was the record setting year, this is good. So it seems like maybe in some ways the things are things are looking up a bit for the society. Uh, and it might have been difficult for some people to get to the garden party. The Seoul Queer Culture Festival was happening nearby in Seoul Square. That's that's just uh, in front of City Hall. And uh, between the Garden Party and the uh, Queer Culture Festival, the uh, call it far right, call it evangelical, call it reactionary, call it retrograde, call it whatever you want. The uh, Christian protest was raging uh, in between. And so you, you spoke with the U.S. ambassador, actually, about this. Uh, he had a few encouraging things to say. Yeah. Uh, now, last year, when he took, uh, when he took the job, uh, he actually, there was, there's always been a, a tent set up for the U.S. embassy and many other embassies at the Queer Culture Festival. And uh, last year, he actually appeared at it and was hanging out and talking with people. Uh, it's, despite his military background, I guess he really is a people person, which really surprised me and impressed me. But so I mentioned this to him and I was like, I feel bad we're keeping you away from that event this year. And uh, and I also told him uh, it gave me a positive impression what he did last year. So he was like, we're, we're still very committed to it. He actually ran inside uh, his house, the big Hanuk where they allow him to live, uh, got on a printer and printed up an article for me about uh, the U.S. embassy, like what it was doing and what he was tweeting about it in support. So just like it was an interesting gesture that just showed to me that like, you know, he kept this in his mind. People in the RES are from all walks of life. Some are conservative, some are uh, liberal. Some probably wanted to be with the Christian protesters. And certainly many wanted to be in the march, but uh, at least at this event, we could put that behind us for a day. And take the opportunity to, to break Kimbop together or whatever. Um, actually, the American embassy itself, this embassy, is right in the heart of Seoul, uh, just like really, really in the, the, the seats of the city. And there was an enormous uh, rainbow flag uh, hung from yes. the outside of the embassy. This was in uh, this was contra to what the president of the United States had uh, uh, requested uh, or or told his embassies around the world, which was to not display pride colors. Uh, so that seems like a bold a bold move. Well, actually, um, the rule is it, the the pride flag cannot hang from a flagpole. So what they did instead is the flag is displayed like pasted up against the building's wall it's not hanging from a flagpole it's just pasted up there and it was actually bigger this year than it ever has been so this was done before that announcement came out anyway so i suspect they did that kind of in anticipation of that whoever was in charge of it they made it bigger of course to send an obvious message but it wasn't on a flagpole importantly well, so and you you mentioned uh in an email to me that three years ago the events lined up uh, another time, the, the, the Queer Culture Festival and the Garden Party. And there was a lot of trouble getting members through the protest to the British Embassy, where it was being held that year. But this year, there, there was fewer problems, you think? Well, some of us were able to come in from other directions. Uh, so I think getting to the uh, U.S. Ambassador's house is easier than reaching the British Embassy. Personally, I just avoided the, the whole area altogether this year. Last year, uh, last time, three years ago, it was my job to, like, stake out the protest and see when our members were coming and get them out of there 
and get them to the, uh, the British Embassy's front gate, which was uh, not fun. <laughs> no, that sounds like a challenge. And just for listeners who haven't attended um, uh, a hate counter-protest in Seoul, it's, it's full of mostly, well, a lot of aging uh, Korean Christians. And uh, yeah, it's a... T- to go protest a queer culture festival means you really have to have a lot of hate in your heart. I think it's interesting that the uh, uh, Royal Asiatic Society is beginning to pivot towards uh, some of the more normal, like not even progressive or, or whatever, but just conventional ways that uh, the world exists today by having uh, uh, so far one lecture about LGBT issues in Korea. So even as Korea itself begins to, if not open up, at least begin to have these conversations or these public protests about about gay rights in Korea, um, th- this seems like an interesting pivot for the RASKB as well. There was a lot of thought put into that too, yeah. Um, last year it was decided, like, we want to make sure that we have uh, a better ratio of female-to-male lecturers and we did want to uh, go on to topics of concern to women and uh, sexual minorities. So um, we did have the lectures by Michelle and uh, Milian about, uh, um, about those issues. But uh, yeah, I mean, uh, by having those lectures, the RES kind of wanted to signal like, you know, we're moving forward with history, not stuck in the past, and our attitude is not old-fashioned when it comes to these things well and when this this conversation about representation that that happens and a lot of people think that it's like trying too hard to bring in like you know lesser heard voices and stuff like that but in fact it's just like a, a, a more correct way of dealing with the world as it is women must be represented women's issues must be represented gay people exist in korea so their issues have to also be represented if you know in an academic institution or, or in the media or whatever so it does sound like a, a a modern shift and a positive shift for the society. The the I want to pivot now to the garden party again. Uh, this was the occasion uh, for the release as well of the 93rd issue of Transactions. This is the journal first published in 1900. Uh, most of the archives are available online. Is that right? Yeah, and actually, Brother Anthony just updated them. So every year up to uh, the one before this one, is available now, so you could read last year's online if you like. And Brother Anthony, one of the one of the chiefs, one of the real one of the real head head hefes of the society, is that right? The president, and we call him Brother Anthony because he's a monk of the Order Taizi. It's not like we're a secret society where I'm Brother John and you're Brother Andre, and you know, <laughs> it's not like that. <laughs> That's right, and he 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 has a many decades old relationship with Korea as well. Yeah, he came here in 1980 at the uh, invitation of Cardinal. Stephen Kim Suhan to uh, so that there would be kind of a foreign presence overseeing what was happening to democracy in Korea or the lack thereof. When you talk about the, some of the relationships you make with some of your peers in the society, uh, th- these are the sort of uh, legacy relationships that some of these people have with the country that, that you really appreciate and that you get to learn from. Is that right? Uh, yeah, totally. Um, it's, uh, it's just very interesting the amount of knowledge that is available at the RES. Uh, not just, you know, like the people that you'll meet at an RES uh, event uh, have a lot of diverse, you know, uh, expertise and experiences. But also, I mean, we have our libraries and everything. So there's just uh, there's so much content in various ways that I've been trying to figure out ways to 
you know, learn about it and uh, share it with people and attract more people to benefit from it. And you, yes. And so when we talk about a journal that's been published for almost 120 years, uh, the, the archives, again, available online. You can find that at RASKB.com. You call this journal a seriously undervalued collection of writing about Korea through its many eras. Tell, tell us more about that. So basically... Um, if you go to our website, uh, you can see a list of every single article ever published in it. And uh, like think of a topic in Korea, uh, like Korean studies, uh, and we probably covered it. So um, a, a lot of times on, uh, on message boards or like the Korea subreddit on Reddit, somebody asks like, hey, does anybody know where I can read something about this? Like, let's say, uh, you know, life under Imperial Japan or something. And, uh, you know, everybody kind of struggles for answers. And I'm just like, oh, yeah, uh, go here. Uh, we've got like uh, several hundred articles and this many are about this topic. Well, and it seems to me that, that then part of the issue for the society is one of promotion, because I was in Korea for six years and the society like barely came across my radar in spite of the fact that I was at Kobo Books every like once a month buying a new a new history book about Korea. Like I was hungry to learn so much. Um, and the society was just something that like, I'm embarrassed to say now, but like, I just didn't know about. So how, how, how does the society sort of aim to promote itself, uh, allowing itself to become more broadly known? Well, we have been struggling with that. And that's one of the things I've been trying to do for them. Uh, I, I share your uh, kind of frustration. I wish I'd known about the RES long ago. Um, I, I first started coming to lectures whenever a friend would lecture, like uh, Stephen Epstein did a lecture on K-pop and representation of women. Uh, like This is probably around 2010 or so. Jacko Zwetsluit did a lecture on North Korean comic books, maybe, uh, after we got back from North Korea. And uh, so I would go and support my friends for that. And eventually I just realized, like, what's stopping me from becoming a member and going to all of these things? Like, there's not too much we can do too radically different. I mean, we want to offer lectures going forward no matter what. We're struggling more to keep offering excursions, which are a little bit of a harder sell. Because, you know, Korea is so easily accessible now. Anybody can go. They don't need to go with a group. With lectures, I mean, my strategy has just been getting more word out, being more frequent on reminders to people. I've... I find if people hear about RES events more, eventually they'll go to one. You know, they'll be like, oh, yeah, I've been hearing uh, about all these lectures, but this one sounds like something I can't miss. Does the location being at, at Somerset uh, at the hotel there, does that make it a little less easy to find maybe because so much of the foreign population, whether they're teachers or whatever, are, are hanging out in Itzewan or, or are hanging out in Hongdae? Yeah, well, also, we're not exclusively a foreigner organization. And uh, like many Koreans do go to our events, probably if you look at uh, if you look at some lectures, they'd probably be about 50 percent Koreans, at least sometimes more, sometimes less. So um, it's kind of an issue. One thing uh, like uh, English teachers have traditionally been underrepresented. My feeling is mostly that they're more spread out and they have worse working hours on weekdays. So when I, when I was teaching English, like I wouldn't finish on Tuesday until like nine or ten. So it can be very difficult for uh, those people to come to those events. Uh, and they tend to not go to excursions on weekends also. That's interesting. Thank, thank, thanks. Moving on. You, you say that contributors to the Transactions Journal aren't all dusty old patrician academics, but they're also adventurers and people with real stories to tell. 
And for instance, you wrote about your own experiences exploring tunnels under the streets of Seoul, focusing on Manchochan, the tunnel used in the movie The Host. So this is so fascinating because most of us haven't explored Seoul underground. So tell us more about the concept of urban exploration in Seoul. How did the city come to be filled with tunnels just everywhere below the surface so in a lot of cases the like if you look at a map of uh joseon seoul um there are streams everywhere and uh a lot of these remained uncovered until the japanese era you know 1910 to 1945 somewhere in there some were covered shortly after parts of manchochun uh were covered starting in the japanese occupation ending in uh i think the, the 50s uh to where it got to its current state Maybe the 60s. Uh, like, they had to be covered up to make, uh, you know, basically roadways. Like, most of the time, a lot of these uh, streams were turned into roads. Like, Chungaechan was the famous one. It was a stream. It was kind of muddy. So they uh, covered it up and built an overpass over it. Uh, Manchuchun was very similar. Uh, only it's just, it was outside of Seoul. It runs from kind of near Yongsan uh, Electronics Market up kind of to the immediate west of Seoul Station, up uh, towards where Sade Moon Prison is. And then it kind of disperses... Well, it. I talk about up because I come from the river, but the water comes down from the mountains around those areas, um, including actually uh, uh, Namsan. Um, there are uh, kind of sources of the stream that come from one way that go under Yongsan Base and actually surface there for a while. So, like, all of these uh, passages, most of them anyway, have been covered up and forgotten, and people really don't know about them anymore. Um, when the movie The Host came out, uh, to me, that was one of the most amazing things about it, was it was, like, it was a fantasy sci-fi horror movie, but it was showing an actual real location that was not well visited and is actually very easy to get to, probably dangerously too easy, I would say. And what's the what is the vibe down? What what is what is it like down there? I'm imagining like a, a moist, humid, uh, kind of like uh, sticky, maybe smelly kind of kind of environment. Is is that is that what it's like? Uh, the last time I went down there, it was actually um, it was quite humid. But um, I try to go in the winter when it's going to be more dry and the insects are more dead. Uh, the very first person I know who ever went down there was an urban explorer named Kim Muru. And uh, you can look her up. She does Her website is nakedcityspleen.com. And uh, she poses naked in places. So she went in there in the summer, got totally naked and took portraits. Um, and she complained to me about the bug bites. I was just like, when I heard that, I was like, okay, I'm going back in winter. And so it was decided like Christmas Day is a holiday and foreigners don't really have family here, so let's just go then. So it became a ritual at that point. So when you go in, it's it's actually like the entrance is much bigger than you can imagine. I, I say that you could pilot a 747 inside if it weren't for all the pillars. Uh, but once you get a little deeper in, um, about, let's say, 700 meters, light from behind you fades. And so you only get intermittent light and it can be quite dangerous um, it can be like your mind plays tricks on you because, you know, you can't see anything in the dark, so you pretty well make stuff up. So um, for that reason, I like to go in there with a group of people, lots of flashlights. So if one person loses a light, no big deal. Um, we bring fireworks. Uh, we uh, bring alcohol. 
basically we become kind of a, a lynch mob to uh, take care of any monsters we see down there. I, I don't want to talk too long about about the ur- urban exploring, uh, but any 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 last things you want to mention about about the, your article talking about that or or about the the uh, the passion itself that you have. Well, I should mention actually that uh, this uh, tunnel even led me uh, towards participating in the RES. My first ever uh, event that I did with them was a tour of Yongsan area, and I gathered all that information from multiple visits to the tunnel. Like, I would meet people at Yongsan Station when we would walk to the site, and so we would go to places along the way, like places that were abandoned or just check in on places and things like that. So I got to know the whole area very well, and that developed into a tour that I did. Um, So to me, uh, even though it sounds like the weirdest thing ever, uh, that is what directly led me to the RES. And I realized I had something to contribute to them also because, like my friend Matt, uh, he spends his weekends, it seems, looking through, um, you know, uh, library, uh, sorry, like, uh, you know, microfiche of newspapers. Uh, and sometimes he joins me on adventures, but I go out and I do these things and see things that you can't read about in books. Are you talking about friend of the show, friend of the creophile Matt Van Volkenberg? Oh, yes. He's a contributor to Transactions, uh, a frequent guest on my adventures and an RES life member and council member also. Yeah, he, he was on the show about three years ago talking about World War II prisoners, uh, prisoners of war in colonial, Japanese colonial era Seoul uh, on the creophile. He was on another time before that, too. And uh, he hosts the very recommended Gusts of Popular Feeling blog, which I found to be a real resource when I was living in Korea and wanting to learn more about about history and about lesser known aspects of the Koreas. Uh, So he contributed a piece to a recent issue of Transactions about Jack London's time in Korea covering the 1904-1905 Russo-Japanese War. So first of all, who's Jack London? Jack London is a famous writer. Uh, Most of what I know about him is he was in that two-part episode of Star Trek The Next Generation where Mark Twain was really the the real star. But... (laughs) So he was uh, basically... uh, He became a foreign correspondent for... I forget who at the time, but uh, it took him on many adventures, including to Korea in 1904. He was with a couple other guys, too, uh, Frederick McKenzie and Robert Dunn. Um, And so uh, Matt collected uh, the writings of all three of them on their time in Korea. They had uh, basically, they beat all the other foreign correspondents uh, to Korea because they were held back in Japan. And they managed to get their own way through uh, Korea got up to Pyongyang, went a little bit further, and then kind of um, the Japanese authority basically got in their way at every turn and tried to keep them from the war front so they couldn't do their jobs. So it's quite an interesting, uh, you know, explanation of their adventures. But um, clearly it's interesting to us looking back on Korea's history, but to them it was extremely frustrating because they had these Japanese people barring them at every uh, point on the way and uh, getting in the way of them doing their jobs. But there's all sorts of interesting things like they actually, uh, one of them taught his uh, uh, like Korean assistant to uh, help him develop photos in just like, you know, Korean 
1904 era settings in villages. There's a lot of other interesting pieces in the recent issue of Transactions. I wanted to ask you about a contributor named Mo Taylor. You met him at a punk concert and you say it took a bit of prying to discover that he's an expert on a particular aspect of North Korean foreign relations. How so? Yeah, so I think he actually was hiding this because he didn't want people at a punk show to know this. As soon as I found out, and I, I, I googled him. He's an expert on uh, North Korea's relationship with uh, socialist Guyana. You know, the country down in uh, kind of the top part of uh, South America. It, um, like, bef- at some point, I don't know the history too well, but... Uh, Forbes Burnham, their, their, um, who lived from 1923 to 85, was the leader of the People's Natural Con- National Congress. And during that time, that, like, their country and North Korea were kind of friendly with each other. And so um, North Korea actually provided doctors for hospitals, uh, taught them how to do mass games. So Guyana had their own actual like mass games, you know, with like people running around and coordinated things and people in stands holding, uh, you know, cards that kind of show animated things. And um, there's all these kind of vestiges of North Korea in Guyana. But apparently, uh, according to Mo, uh, I'm hoping I'm getting this right, he started writing about this academically. He's actually Guyanese-Canadian. And um, so apparently somebody from North Korea officially reached out to him and was like, hey, um, do you want to revive, like, the friendship between our two countries? Like, Guyana used to have a North Korea Friendship Association. North Korea still does, apparently. And it there's never closed because, you know, they haven't had much change politically. So, uh, like, he's been invited to North Korea, apparently, and, like... But possibly watch for him on a future episode of The Korea File as this relationship with the Royal Asiatic Society Korea branch continues to unfold. Uh, I want to talk about a couple other contributors uh, before we wrap this up. Another contributor to the journal, Mark Peterson, wrote about the Confucianization of the mid-Joshan period in Korea and how inheritance rights were stolen from women and concentrated in the hands of the firstborn sons. And one thing he covers in his studies is the adoption of male heirs within the patrilineage. Like if you're the eldest son and you don't have a male heir, you adopt one from one of your younger brothers. So you say this might sound kind of old fashioned, but you make the connection with the strange familial world of the Chebol, the the world of corporate Korea. Tell us about LG Group Chairman Ku Bon Mu. He, he had a couple of daughters, right? Uh, so Ku Bon Mu, he died. Uh, I think it was earlier this year, right? He was, in my opinion, one of the better, more ethical, keeping his nose clean uh, Chebol leaders. When you compare him to like. Lotte and Samsung and Hyundai and everything. But uh, yeah, he didn't have a male son. So he adopted Ku Kwang Mo from his younger brother while Ku Kwang Mo was in his mid-twenties. So an adult adoption. Um, and now Ku Kwang Mo has been groomed to take over the company. This is a practice that has a few centuries of history. Yes, and so so re, so making the connections with contemporary times by exploring the past is is a great aspect of historic academia. And uh, Mark Peterson's piece on con- the Confucianization of the Mid-Joseon period and how inheritance rights were stolen from women and concentrated in the hands of the firstborn sons is in the latest issue of Transitions. Uh, 
the journal also isn't afraid to publish some weirder material. Jeremy Seligson contributed what you describe as a very spacey piece regarding dreams of dragon pearls and demong dreams. What, what does that mean? So, first of all, demong dream, that's a dream that uh, basically it's a conception dream. So if a woman becomes pregnant, usually her, but maybe another relative, will have a temong dream, which is usually like they'll dream about some sort of particular animal or food. And then they'll wake up and know like, yes, I am pregnant. And some of the, some of the more powerful of these dreams were about uh, dragons. So dragons in uh, Asian mythology often have like a pearl, like usually in their mouth or something. And if you manage to get your hands on that, then it grants you like basically God status. He did this bizarre thing. I don't know where the information comes from. I believe interviews of uh, people who have had dreams about dragons. That is so wacky. Uh, that, so that is coveting the dragon's pearl, Jeremy Seligson, in the latest issue of Transitions. There's also Exploring Manchochun Soul's Underground River. That's written by you. The Jeju Fish Wars by Robert Neff. Jejua, Korea's Endangered Language from Morris Saltzman. And the North Korean Fragments of Post-Socialist Guyana by Mo Taylor. Those and others are in the latest, the, uh, latest issue. John, anything else you want to share with the listeners uh, before we wrap this up? At the moment, all I can say is if you're in Korea, then it's worth your time to track down the RAS uh, go to any of our events. Even if you don't think the topic sounds interesting, uh, for lectures at least, you should go anyway because we socialize and we network. I have personally gotten a few jobs uh, over the years through connections made through the RAS. Very useful. Excursions can be very useful for you also. Um, if you're not in Korea, probably the... And, you know, you never get a chance to come here. Uh, I would say you should go online and check out our ebook library, our actual bookstore and our, our our backlog of 92 issues of transactions. And these can all be found at raskp.com. Royal Asiatic Society Korea Branch Council member, life member of the RSKP, Transactions General Editor, Urban Explorer, and self-publisher of the punk zine Broke in Korea, John Dunbar. Thanks for speaking with The Korea File. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to episode 85 of The Korea File. You can find my other work on Canadian politics and society on the Unpacking the News podcast. You can follow me on Twitter at Andre Margoulet. Music on this episode is courtesy of Creative Commons. The Korea File is a monthly podcast exploring Korean society, culture, and politics and highlighting critical, independent voices you won't find anywhere else. And hey, you know those coins that you have in your pocket right now? What are you spending it on later? A roll of kimbap? A well-read paperback from What the Book? A cup of coffee from Tom and Tom's? Well, did you know that the Korea File is produced and hosted on a volunteer basis and that contributing just a few dollars a month at patreon.com slash the Korea File helps to keep the show on the air. Your support helps to cover hosting fees and the hours of production that go into creating this show. The Korea File depends on listeners like you for support, so if you can afford to support the show and become a monthly patron, head on down to patreon.com slash the Korea File and become a monthly supporter. I'll be back in mid-August with the next piece in our series of collaborative episodes with the Seoul-based Korea branch. 
of history and culture organization, the Royal Asiatic Society. Until then, I'm Andre Goulet. Thanks for listening. <laughs>